this. Well, we've talked a lot about the level playing field, about making it a level playing field when it comes to rideshare and existing taxi companies. Well, there is now an online petition that has to do with eliminating the boundaries for taxi companies. And joining me on the phone is Gurdeep Sahota, General Manager of Sunshine Cabs in North Vancouver. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Morning, Jill. Thank you for having me. Uh, how are things going as far as getting signatures on the petition at this point? Uh, well, you know, we're, uh, I think uh, last night I checked, it was uh, about 550. So it's it's moving along. All right. And talk a little bit, because there are still some taxi companies that are opposed to this idea of getting rid of the boundaries. So can you talk a little bit about why Sunshine is in favor of this and what exactly you're calling for? Well, you know, uh, uh, Sunshine Cabs is uh, has actually been a proponent for a very long time for opening up boundaries, and this is not the first time we've asked for it. Um, the the current situation um, is is that you know because of the you know arrival of ride hailing, the the passenger transportation board and the ministry, they brought in regulations uh, last year in September. Uh, which were very disturbing for us uh, after, you know, months and years of promising a level playing field. To our horror, we found out that uh, ride hailing would be getting a huge swath of, uh, you know, southern BC to operate in, you know, essentially Region 1, for example, uh, encompasses a very vast area from Whistler, uh, uh, includes three regional districts, so Squamish, uh, Lillooet, our area here in Metro Vancouver and the Fraser Valley Regional District all the way out to Hope. And, you know, in the meantime, we here uh, in Metro Vancouver are living in a reality where uh, out of all the regional districts in our beautiful province, uh, the Metro Vancouver is the only regional district where we actually have internal boundaries for taxis. So we wanted to, uh, you know, get those removed. We've been asking for that to be removed even before the arrival of right-hailing because we know that if there's one factor that inhibits our ability to compete effectively uh, through apps as well, uh, I mean, you know, uh, in the app boundaries called geofencing. So, you know, if we were, for example, to impose that geofencing on the Uber app, it would crash in an hour or so because, you know, drivers wouldn't be able to go across from Surrey to Vancouver to pick up uh, or vice versa. So that's why we're calling for the removal of boundaries because this then levels the playing field and gives our drivers a fighting chance to uh, to be able to compete using our existing resources. And where are you getting the most pushback against this? Well, you know, there's uh, the, you know, the usual suspects, which is our friends in the uh, city of Vancouver, who uh, for decades have enjoyed uh, the fruits of uh, operating in an area which has become the entertainment uh, and tourism hub for the Metro Vancouver area. Um, you know, I've got uh, two young um, adult kids who, like everybody, every young person that you and I know, uh, love to go out uh, with their friends um, for sporting events or, you know, uh, um, you know, have a, a nice meal in, in Vancouver. And on the weekends, you know, we uh, we have the makings of a gong show where, You've got uh, tens of thousands of people milling around in downtown, and they can't get a safe ride home. Um, you know, our company operates in North Vancouver. On a weekly basis, we get complaints uh, from our customers who say that, you know, they were uh, trying to flag uh, one of our cabs down 
on uh, Georgia Street or Broad, say, and you know, knowing that you know Sunshine Cabs is going back to the North Shore and they'll be able to pick us up. But the fact that the cab drove by, and I used to hear the same stories when I was general manager of North Shore Taxi. So this, these are some of the issues uh, that we're having to deal with. But, you know, our competition is not with our friends in Vancouver. You know, we know what their longstanding position is. Our appeal is to the Minister of Transportation, who actually has the power uh, to do something about it. And that is why we've launched this online petition, Jill. Absolutely. Uh, is there a concern, though, and you mentioned the Vancouver, so if you use the weekend as an example, the entertainment district or the places where there would be the most demand for cabs, is there a concern then that if there's no boundaries, whether it's North Shore, Burnaby, anywhere outside of Vancouver, their cabs would, would come into Vancouver and only serve Vancouver and it would take away service from other areas? So, you know, that is a uh, a, a, a much-used, uh, you know, um, you know, refrain that we hear from people. You know, we should remember that um, these boundaries were relaxed um, quite successfully uh, first during um, Expo, almost for six months, Jill. Mm-hmm. And uh, then most recently during the Olympic and uh, Winter Olympic and Paralympic Games, all right? Uh, because the authorities knew that uh, there would be a big rush of, or big, you know, demand. Now, what we are saying is that, you know, technology is the great equalizer. And uh, I studied a little bit of economics uh, in university before coming to Canada uh, around 30 years ago. And what I learned was that, you know, there's something on equilibrium. So there's a way for demand and supply to equalize and technology right now allows us to do that. It happens you know, all the time. You know, the um, Uber app, for example, uh, you know, it, it has a built-in mechanism to, you know, make sure that the demand meets the supply. So what we're simply saying is that, you know, given, given how things are evolved, you know, it is time to actually look at a different model uh, for licensing. Um, the Mayor's Council um, you know, has endorsed the intermunicipal business license. The city of Vancouver actually is the lead on regionaliz- regionalization of taxi licensing. So they're actually playing a leading role. Uh, and uh, we're talking about, a, you know, a, a city where uh, for about seven years, they were actually, you know, quite steadfast in not allowing our 38 suburban cars, which had been duly licensed by the PTB to operate in downtown Vancouver, on the weekends, they stopped uh, the operation of those vehicles. So on paper, there are no boundaries because we broke those boundaries when the PTB issued licenses uh, to the seven suburban companies to operate in downtown Vancouver. What we're saying is it's time to expand that, you know, and cover all taxis. We're not against um, the, our friends in Vancouver. We know that their drivers are also suffering. We're hearing from them all the time. Um, you know, I've got relatives uh, who own cabs in, uh, in, in uh, you know, the Vancouver taxis. And uh, we know, and I myself have driven there for about almost five years. I used to drive night shift, uh, both a yellow and black top. And I, I knew, you know, I mean, it's a total waste of time where you get taken out on a trip to Coquitlam. And it's a 45-minute drive uh, back, you know, and, and, you know, you're wondering, you know, uh, you know, I could have I could have done something differently here, but uh, so we know that uh, this model is outdated. These boundaries are archaic, and in 2020, there is no there is there is no appetite to carry on with the with this regime, which 
uh, serves no purpose right now. And you make a good point that it was done in Expo and during the Olympics, so clearly it can work. It's been done before. Are there drivers, do you think, that ju- that uh, run the risk of getting, I don't even know if it's policed all that well, I, I hear that it's not. Are there drivers that run the risk of being penalized and pick up people anyway? Well, you know, uh, look, I, um, you know, I'm 51 years old, and uh, I, um, when presented with uh, a fact, will never deny it. Taxi drivers behave like taxi drivers. Okay, we we have a running joke in the industry, Jill, is that uh, if if uh, if if somebody's even scratching their ear on the sidewalk, a driver thinks they're trying to hail a cab, so they'll pull over and say, "Sir, do you need a cab?" So, uh, you know, drivers do what drivers do, and uh, the the supply will go where the demand is, whether that supply is in is on the North Shore, whether it is in Vancouver, whether it is in Cloverdale or anywhere else. You know, um, we're simply saying we have a, a valuable transportation resource which is not being properly utilized uh, today, and it is time that, you know, that red tape, which prevents us from operating our vehicles properly to, and, and this will have great benefits, like instantaneously, you know, the ridership will double. Why? Because right now, uh, our businesses are open only 50% of the time. You know, if I get take if one of my drivers gets taken out to White Rock, well, guess what? For, for the next hour, he's out of business. Right. right. So, so I'm saying, getting the impression that, that the answer to that question is yes, that that if a tra- taxi sees somebody that needs a ride, they pick them up. Absolutely, they do. Yes. Right. And so why yeah. not just make it legal? Why make it that that's something that's it's against happening. the rules? Yes. Exactly. Yeah, we're simply saying bring the rules in, in line with what, what, what actual behavior, what's actually happening on the streets. All right. Well, we will watch what happens with the petition. I know I think it's mid-March and then it goes to the transportation minister and we'll see what happens from there and uh, hopefully have you back on the show. Uh, Gurdeep Sahota, thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jill. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Morning. We're going to talk about a homeless shelter. It's located in Coquitlam on Gordon Avenue, and there have been concerns raised about this because of everything the shelter is trying to do. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about the shelter and why there have been concerns raised is Brent Edmondson, a Coquitlam City Councillor. Councillor Edmondson, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Oh, glad to be here, Jill. Thank you. Uh, so what are the concerns? Because when we hear about this, uh, Coquitlam, like many places in Metro Vancouver, has a homeless population, certainly has people that would need a shelter like this. What are some of the concerns, though, that are being raised? Well, there's a, a lot of issues down there. Uh, a lot of impacts on the community from vandalism, transientness, um, nuisance, uh, aggressive behavior. Now, what we found out and what I was one of the big supporters of the shelter in Coquitlam and having what to deal with the people in these areas. We were, provide, we were promised at that time wraparound services that we haven't ever really got to deal with the people down there. The model that BC Housing sold Coquitlam on was a model of a, trans, of a shelter with transitional housing, so 30 shelter beds, 30 transitional housing. It's now been told to us that that's the model that the province and BC Housing would never use again. It doesn't work. So we're going, great. Well, we need more resources to help us make this work. And so um, we've been pushing for that. We formed a task force about three years ago. It reported out about a bunch of actions that we need to done. We feel the province has been slow to properly fund the needs to make this shelter. Put it this way, we just got some improvements 
from the province uh, to have a nurse there twice a week on Wednesday and Fridays from 2 to 4 p.m. We would like a nurse there maybe four or five days a week for a, a, maybe a full day shift to deal. There's about, there's 60 people they opened up. We had also was 30, 30, and 30. So there's 30 shelter beds, 30 transitional housing, but there's also 30 beds in cold weather, weather or cold weather that could be opened up for temporary. They changed, took 10 of those and added them to women's beds to help with the women's population. So there's 70 people in there. And we have a lot of problems with transient people hanging out in the area. And the, so I'll leave you to ask more questions. <laughs> sure. So is it that it's trying to do too many things for too many different groups of people? Yes, that would be one of the issues. Uh, the other issue is what they found is that the transitional housing unit falls under the Rental Tenancy Act rather than, say, under a health act where the staff at Rain City could better manage the people in those units. So when those people go into those transitional housing units, they have the protection of the Rental Tenancy Act. We've got people with hoarding. Uh, there is a low-barrier shelter, so people in those units can do drugs within their rooms. We've had issues with that. Um, so that's an issue for the operational part of it with Rain City and the difficulties they have because they're allowed certain people to come and go from their transitional housing units, maybe people that Rain City doesn't want, that maybe bring drugs and more drugs and issues into the shelter. So that's an issue for the model that we're doing here. Right. And so one of the concerns, and this has been raised in other uh, shelters as well, is that if you have somebody that's in treatment or somebody that's trying to get into treatment, wanting to, whether it's a drug habit or what have you, if that person isn't exposed to a lot of people who are doing drugs or who who are that has easy access to drugs, it makes it extremely difficult. So is that one of the issues, too, that you think that these things need to be separated? Oh, most definitely. Um, that's something we know now that these should be separate. There's a lot of people who are in the homeless community out there that are trying to get off drugs, won't go to 3030 Gordon. One, because the drugs are allowed in the site in the rooms. <clears throat> people hanging out like that aren't banned from this shelter or friends of the shelter that are hanging around preying on people going in and out of there. So it's a, it's a, a situation that isn't working. Now, we've asked the province for more resources down there. We've asked for Range City to have more staffing down there to help deal with the situation down there. And we haven't been getting that. And we feel that the province recognizes this is a, a model that doesn't work. So their answer to us has been at this point, if you want to make this a high barrier shelter or something else, then you need to give us another piece of land so we'll open up another shelter or something else in your community. And our, my answer, and I think our council's answer would be, is that until we can show our community that this works, that has less of an impact on our community, we can't move forward with any else, anything else. Uh, because isn't it also difficult, and this isn't uh, just in Coquitlam, I mean, we've covered stories like this in Maple Ridge and certainly other areas, that when you put one of these facilities in a neighbourhood, there is inevitably an increase in complaints. Uh, and, and for many of the things that you just talked about, whether it's people loitering, people trying to prey on people who are mo- the most vulnerable, uh, some residents will say that crime goes up, break-ins to vehicles and homes. It's not as though there's any particular area, I would imagine, that people would be very welcoming. Well, and and I think these things can work. I really believe that a, maybe a shelter model or different models can work. It's about the resources going into it. We felt we were promised wraparound resources when we approved this, that there would be a lot of supports, and uh, that just hasn't materialized to what we had expected. Now. You know, because the, the homeless population needs to be dealt with, and they need help. And 
the province needs to recognize that the model that they sold us on here in the Tri-Cities doesn't work. We need more resources to make it work and to solve the problem. They they could do legislation where the uh, transitional units were taken out of the Residential Tenancy Act and put under maybe a different uh, act where they have better use in managing that situation down there. Um, We can't ignore the situation of the homeless. And so we need the province to step up and help us. We are spending a lot of city resources from police, fire, bylaws, and other parts of our city um, working with us. And, it, and the seriousness of the situation about three years ago, we created a task force to identify all the issues that need to be done. We haven't got the problems committed to helping us solve all the issues. We need them to come in with more funding to reduce the impacts, to make this work better for all involved. Uh, do you feel like it's been offloaded then on the city in that it does come under bylaws with the city and it becomes the city's issues where it's something that's run by BC Housing and it's something that is actually should be under the jurisdiction of the province? Well, it's run by BC Housing. It's not run by us. Um, so BC Housing um, is in full control of this operation. The, the city of Coquitlam uh, gave up on a 60-year lease the piece of land that the shelter and the transitional housing sits on. BC Housing is responsible for uh, selecting Rain City Housing as the provider, and they're the ones that fund Rain City Housing. And so our resources come out from dealing with the impacts of that in there, and that's been downloaded onto us, and that takes resources away from other areas within our city. Uh, right, because at one point, wasn't the city even looking at uh, putting something forward like an anti-loitering bylaw or coming up with its own bylaws to try and deal with some of the, the issues there? Well, the anti-loitering bylaws when struck down the courts, they don't work. Um, what we try to do from the businesses is try to get no trespassing signs on business in that area. That makes it better for the police to deal with it. And that's the difficulty for the police in dealing with this, that the courts have pretty much... Uh, will not enforce our loitering bylaws have no teeth or enforceable powers anymore. And from what I understand, BC Housing has even said that, yes, a much better model is to have separate uh, separate buildings when it comes to an emergency shelter, shelter and a separate building with, with transitional housing because they are very different things. They're very different services, but that there simply isn't the space. So is it an issue that there just isn't space and there isn't a facility to separate the two? Well, as we've, as we've said for a number of years, we have a facility in Coquitlam that is greatly underused, and it's called the Riverview Lands. And we have a report, the Higamom report, that we have put out to the province under the previous government, this government has it, on a, a bigger mental health facilities on that ground. And because um, a lot of these people don't, when they become homeless, aren't drug addicts. A lot of them become drug addicts once they're homeless and they feel useless and they get depressed and they get onto drugs and so the province has land the province can put more treatment facilities in that area we need more treatment the the problem with the transitional housing is a lot of people are stuck waiting for treatment and if you know anything about people um, when they need treatment and they're willing to take treatment you got to get them in there so the province has land where they could do more treatment facilities. They built two new buildings, but those strictly replaced the two buildings that were in Burnaby, and there was, I think, a 10 or 12-bed increase. We need more than that. So 
uh, that would be my response to that. Uh, do you feel like Coquitlam is taking a lot of this in the Tri-Cities, or are there facilities that you know of in neighboring, whether it's Port Coquitlam, uh, New Westminster, are there other facilities, or is it kind of all coming to, or an, an, a, a lot of, uh, of, of it coming to the Gordon Street facility? The only transition, the only shelter for the Tri-Cities is this shelter here. When Maple Ridge had their issue with the um, province in regarding to a shelter in their area from the previous mayor and this mayor, they pointed to this shelter in Coquitlam as a reason why they don't want it. So if the province wants to have shelters and have other cities accept them, they need to fix the issue because other cities point to our issue. Because when you, and the thing is that from a, a city of Vancouver to the suburbs of Coquitlam are different communities, different people. And for my feelings, the province needs to make this work to show other cities, hey, we will invest in this, we will solve the problems, we will help you, we will minimize. Because we told that group down there that there would be minimal impacts into their community. And I supported that at the time, I bought into that, and the impacts have been far greater, and that's we've let down the businesses in that area and the people in that area. Uh, So what do you do next? We keep pushing the province to come to the table with more funding, more services for our, uh, for the people down there, more services for Rain City and staffing to deal with the issues down there, and um, become a bigger partner in trying to solve this. If they want to move more services and have more communities accept these type of things in their community, they got to show that it works. And when they when this one isn't working the way it was, it makes other communities out there that they want to take on a shelter or something like that, they won't do it. All right. Well, we will leave it there and uh, hopefully uh, get uh, an update sooner rather than later. Uh, Councillor Edmondson, thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. You're very welcome. Have a good day. So let's talk a little bit about what's been happening in BC politics. Mike Smith is on the line with us, columnist of the province, host here on CKNW. Good morning to you. Hi, good morning, Jill. Uh, we'd already planned to, to do this and talk about BC politics and then a bit of breaking news, a word out today uh, that Rich Coleman is calling it quits. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Rich Coleman, one of the longest serving liberal MLAs, and I would say probably one of the most controversial, kind of a polarizing figure, Jill, for sure, the former Solicitor General in the previous liberal government. He's a former RCMP officer, so becoming the Solicitor General was a great achievement for him when the liberals are in power. But uh, since then, he's been uh, a controversial guy, um, particularly over at the with the NDP's allegations around money laundering. He was the minister responsible for the money laundering file when a lot of the problems were had held in the had uh, experienced in the casinos. And some people have been calling for him to be a witness to testify at the uh, ongoing public inquiry into money laundering. So this is a guy that, even though he's in opposition right now and has uh, got a much lower pro- profile politically these days. Still a guy who's kind of a controversial figure. And he announced um, in an interview with his uh, local media, with the the newspaper in Langley there, that he will retire. So in a lot of ways, it's not a huge surprise, but I I think it's also a key moment that such a long-serving liberal MLA, who basically had a lock on that riding, he'd get reelected every single time he ran, that he is stepping aside. And I imagine that Andrew Wilkinson, the liberal leader, is probably pleased about that. He put out a statement this morning uh, 
very complimentary to Coleman, of course, and thanking him for his service. But I imagine him and some of the other Liberal leaders are perhaps kind of happy that a controversial guy like uh, Coleman is going to step aside and that they get uh, some new new blood in there. there. There's a lot of sort of older Liberal MLAs been around for a long time that probably the Liberals uh, st- strategically would like to see move aside, and Coleman is certainly one of them. Uh, what about the timing then? Do you make anything of the timing that this is happening right as the money laundering, uh, the inquiry gets underway? Well, I, I think it's more coincidental because, yeah, uh, you know, we're we're a year out, a year or so more out from an election, and timing is around right for some of these MLAs to start announcing their plans and whether they're going to seek re-election or not to give the party time to get a nomination process going and to get somebody else in there. Uh, he said to the local newspaper uh, that he gave the interview to that he made the announcement today because it was a the anniversary of his uh, announcing that he would first run uh, way back when. So he said there, this is a special anniversary for him, and that, that's, why he, that's why he's doing it. So uh, I don't think he'll be the last. You know, I think we can maybe wait to see if we get a similar announcement from uh, Mike DeYoung, for example. There's a lot of, lot of eyes on him and whether he'll run again. So that's a, he's a big name. He's a big name to be stepping aside for the Liberals for sure, but uh, not unsurprising in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, do you think his career and uh, the statement from Andrew Wilkinson kind of goes through uh, all of his achievements? And again, like you said, is very complimentary. How much, though, do you think is it uh, the, the money laundering and his name being connected to money laundering in this province? <clears throat> does that kind of tarnish it? Well, we'll see what comes out in this public inquiry for sure. But I, I think it's already had a negative impact on him. You might remember that uh, before the the last uh, municipal election, he was talking about running for the mayor of Surrey. And right. there was a lot of people thought he would have had a, a, a heck of a strong chance to become the mayor of Surrey at that time. And the money laundering scandal blew up in the middle of all that speculation. And the first stories and scandals kind of started to appear around the money laundering stuff. And I remember very memorably, I did an interview with him at that time and asked him if this was going to impact his potential run to become the mayor of Surrey. <clears throat> and he said, no, no, this is, I've, he's done nothing wrong and he's still considering his options to become the mayor. And it was a short time after that he announced that he would not run to become the mayor of Surrey. So I think he's already sustained some damage from the money laundering file. But I think the, the critical component here will be, as this uh, Austin Cullen Commission goes forward here in the days ahead, is he called as a witness? What does he say on the witness stand if he is called as a witness? What kind of information will emerge from that money laundering public inquiry about the decisions that he made back when he was Solicitor General, especially the decision under the previous Liberal government to shut down an anti-money laundering uh, RCMP specialized police squad? that he was the minister responsible there when that unit was shut down. And that's been a real point of contention in this inquiry, that, and that will almost certainly be addressed in this public inquiry. So he's stepping aside, but I think in a lot of ways still might be in the, lim- in the limelight, maybe for some of the wrong reasons. Hmm, absolutely. Uh, yeah. One of the quotes in the local paper, the Langley Advanced Times, that I found interesting, too, uh, he told the reporter there, I'm not done. I've got some ideas for some other yeah. adventures. As far as I'm concerned, <laughs> I have one more career left in me. What do you make of that? Uh, uh, yeah, interesting. Uh, hmm. Yeah, a little cryptic. I'm not <laughs> sure what he means by that. Running federally? No. Would he do that? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think, I don't know, I think he'd be done with politics. But I'll tell you what, he's still popular in Langley. 
I mean, this is a guy who ran every time he'd been in some scrapes in, in the past and never seemed to have any problem getting reelected. That's that's a pretty safe liberal seat there. So I don't know if he if he ran again, maybe federally for a political party, uh, I, I wouldn't rule him out. But I'm not I'm not certain uh, exactly what he means there, Jill. I haven't had a chance to talk to him yet. Hmm. Looking forward to talking to him, though. Yeah, out more. absolutely. All right. Yep. So that's uh, the big news this morning. Uh, originally, yeah. as I said, we were going to talk about provincial politics. So what's happening to the legislature? Is it still closed to the public? Yeah, yeah. The legislature is closed because of the of the ongoing protests on the front steps of the legislature. When you walk through the building, it still smells like uh, wood smoke. Uh, that's been going on for a lot of days from the fire that was lit on the front steps from the anti-pipeline protesters. So, yeah, there is uh, the the house is still closed closed off to the public. The, the politicians are still in there doing their work and voting on bills and passing laws, but the public not allowed to come in and watch. So these anti-pipeline protesters are certainly having a, a direct impact, I guess, on the, the way our democracy functions here. There was a critical vote in the House just the other day on the provincial budget, which is a confidence vote under our, under our rules. And with a minority government in power, any confidence vote is, is a critical moment. <clears throat> the NDP and uh, Green Party alliance here held together, and they e- pretty easily passed that vote. But that happened with nobody in the public visitors gallery there to watch, which I think is kind of a shame. But yeah, mm-hmm. so the House <clears throat> legislature still remains closed. And uh, as far as the <clears throat> protesters, is it uh, the police are watching? Because there was an issue too with was it liquid chalk that was painted on the side? Yeah, yeah there was some graffiti and, and slogans being painted on the legislature grounds, not with spray paint, but the protesters are saying, well, it wasn't spray paint, it was spray on chalk. So that would be easier to remove, but that is still potentially mischief uh, in the eyes of the law. So we saw two arrests there the other day. Um, They had a movie night there, I believe, last night, set up a big movie screen and had a movie for people sitting around outside. So I guess, Hmm. you know, they're getting some comforts of home out there. But so far, we have not seen a repeat of the the really kind of um, inter... uh, uh, disruptive protests that we saw earlier with them blocking doors around the around the building. There is still a court injunction in place to pre- to prevent protesters from blocking any doors, and so far they're not doing that. They're just sitting around the front steps. All right, and that's of course, uh, as you said, it's uh, the anti-pipeline protests. Yeah. I would imagine as well the premier and uh, many other uh, MLAs are watching what's happening in Smithers as those talks oh. are expected to continue today. My goodness, this is really sort of a dramatic moment up there as these talks continue. There's going into day three of these talks. So they began on Thursday. As I was, was it described to me, the Thursday events were more kind of introductions and just went for a few hours. Then yesterday, we're told there were very substantive talks in, in the room between the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs and the federal and provincial indigenous relations ministers. Uh, all sides coming out and reporting progress, but no real details on what's being discussed in there. But uh, talks continuing today. So this is going into day three of these talks, and I think that's a good thing. Um, if they can achieve some sort of resolution to, to to stop these blockades and protests, I think that would please a lot of people. But these are very difficult issues they're talking about. And one government official said to me, one of the things not on the table in those talks is shutting down that pipeline, that the federal and provincial government still fully behind the coastal gasoline pipeline, and that there's, there's no uh, willingness on the part of either government to put that on the table and say we, we would withdraw permits for these pipelines. 
So that, that, they say that's not on the table. But there's a lot of other talks going on behind the scenes on other issues, it appears. Absolutely. All right, yep. uh, Mike Smith, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. All right, Jill, anytime. Well, if you live or work or, or spend any time in New Westminster around the 22nd Street SkyTrain station, you might know that big changes are coming to that particular station. You're probably quite familiar with it. What would it be like, like though, if it was a car-free zone or other changes were made? Well, those uh, that's just one of the options that's on the table. Let's bring in Patrick Johnstone, a New Westminster City Councillor, to talk a bit more about this. Good morning to you. Good morning. How are you? I, I'm great. How about you? Great. <laughs> so what are you guys looking at? What is Council looking at as far as potential changes for this station? Well, I think everyone will recognize that, you know, along the SkyTrain line, there's communities that have sort of redeveloped the area around the SkyTrains in order to take advantage of the transit corridor. Um, But there are some stations where really nothing has changed since 1986. And uh, the area around 22nd Street Station, uh, what we call Connaught Heights in Westminster, is is one of those areas. You know, it's one of those few SkyTrain stations where there are single family homes all around the uh, all around the uh, SkyTrain station. So this, when the city updated its official community plan back in 2017, we identified that area as a frequent transit development area. And we sort of thought we'd have a, a master planning process to sort of vision forward about what that neighborhood would look like if it became, um, you know, as it, as it developed. Um, so what we're launching right now is this visioning process. And I don't want to prejudge it too much. We're at the beginning of the process, but... We're looking at what a community would look like if it was planned sort of with the Paris Agreement in, in mind, if it's a zero carbon or a car light or car free community. And what does a transit oriented, complete community look like in sort of a post carbon economy world? And that is so, and again, kind of everything on the table, but so looking at, would it be looking at an area around the station? How big of an area would we be talking about that might be a car free or an emissions free zone? Yeah, it's a, a few blocks is the area that is, is where the plan is going to cover um, is the best way of thinking about it. We think about these transit-oriented areas as being, you know, within a 10-minute walk shed or, you know, you have a slightly different type of development within a five-minute walk shed. So if you think about sort of the few blocks of Connaught Heights and maybe a little bit of the West End, um, yeah, it, it's an area that people would be easily be able to walk to. And the idea is to make, uh, try to build a neighborhood where people would be able to walk to SkyTrain to get onto uh, frequent transit, but would also have a lot of their own services. You know, they have jobs, they would have places to shop, they'd have parks, they'd have schools, all the things that you need for your daily life within a short walk so that you don't need to rely on an automobile. Hmm. But how would that actually make a difference, though, if we're talking about a few blocks? So it kind of if people are driving then a few blocks away and then suddenly there's this bubble where you're only walking or it's only emissions free vehicles. It's not like it takes away everything that's happening outside of those few blocks. Oh, no, I think we're talking about um, building a community here. So I think what we're really that is our job as a city is to plan forward for land use. And so we're really considering what, what the situation is going to be for the people who are going to be living in this neighborhood. That's sort of who we're, who we're imagining being able to um, live sort of in a car-light community. I mean, we recognize that not everybody is going to choose to live in a car-light community. Some people really like, want to have their cars. But other people are, are living a different lifestyle now in urban areas where they, they use a car to go when they need a car occasionally. Or they use, or I guess, not a car to go anymore. <laughs> no, not they anymore. Use an <laughs> they use an Evo or a Moto if they want to use a car. But they, you know, for their daily trips every day, they they don't rely on it. They they aren't reliant on it. 
And this is uh, looking at uh, the future of the 22nd Street Station. Is it your goal or would you like this to be then if that something like this is adopted, then that would kind of would it be the template for future stations? Oh, I'm not sure. I mean, we obviously have to have some conversations with TransLink about how the station will be serviced. Um, 22nd Street is a significant bus loop. Um, a lot of people get on and off of buses at 22nd Street Station, so that requires, you know, for some people to be dropped off there. Um, but how that would be integrated into the regional transportation system is an interesting conversation. This is an area around 22nd, Connaught Heights, that is surrounded by busy roads. You know, people are coming off of the Queensboro Bridge and people are going along Stewartson and Marine Drive. So it, so it is an area that's, you know, not very densely populated, but really surrounded by uh, other people's traffic, essentially. So it's interesting to think about how this community could sort of sit in that area and what impact that would have on, on the surrounding roads. Have you had any feedback or is it at that stage even yet for getting feedback? Yeah, we are very much at the beginning of this. So as I said, in, in the official community plan the city put, in, put out in 2017, we, we sort of left this area around 22nd Street as a bit of a gray area, recognizing that we'd have to do some future master planning. So we're starting that planning now, and of course it's going to involve a lot of conversation with the community about what it looks like. And where do you think density comes into this? Because we've talked about this, I think, with other stations as well, that if you want people to walk and to have their businesses and to access, whether it's coffee shops or restaurants, and to make it all work, then then there needs to be more density. There needs to be more people uh, there. Is that something that's part of this conversation as well? I, I think that's absolutely part of the conversation. Uh, New Westminster is a growing city like everyone else in the lower mainland. Uh, we are part of the regional growth strategy. And... Um, we recognize that there's going to be, you know, there's going to be by 2040, there's going to be another 20,000 people probably living in New Westminster. So we want to concentrate that density around SkyTrain stations. So the question now is, how does that density look? Do we want to build a few towers next to the station, or do we want to build sort of a larger, more integrated, walking-friendly neighborhood? There's a lot of different forms that density can take. Absolutely. And do you have a preference? Do I have a preference? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to put in a preference right now on this. I think it's important that we have this conversation. Uh, there's a lot of potential in that area, and how you design around an elevated SkyTrain station is part of the concern. But it's also a beautiful south-facing slope in that area. It's one of the most beautiful places on the SkyTrain. When you take the SkyTrain out of Edmond Station and you come out, sort of out, of the, out of the forest into that beautiful view down south, it's a really beautiful part of the lower mainland. So designing something that integrates sort of that beautiful view and and just the the, uh, fortuitous location it is, it's going to take some work. All right. And how does it fit in, do you think, with, like you said, not everybody will want to get out of their vehicle, can get out of their vehicle. We still rely on vehicles for moving goods. When we talk about things like replacing the Patello Bridge, and there, I mean, there's debate on how big that bridge should be. How do we kind of do have those two conversations at once, this idea of climate change and building for a climate-friendly future and also having that infrastructure? Oh, when we talk about climate change and climate action, we, I mean, people often think about pipelines and cars and home heating and these big sources of greenhouse gases. And, um, but we don't emphasize land use planning enough. Um, how we plan and design our cities has a huge impact on the carbon intensity of the lifestyle of people who live there. So, I mean, New Westminster is developing as a, you know, we are a, we are a 
transit-friendly city. People in New Westminster use transit a lot. And, you know, even though we've grown significantly in the last 10 years, the recent trip diaries uh, data from TransLink shows that people in New Westminster are using cars less. We're actually generating less car trips now than we were 10 years ago, even though the city is growing. So I think that um, land use planning and transportation planning have to be integrated if we're going to get anywhere in, as far as dealing with our emissions. All right. Uh, we will leave it there. But thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Okay, thanks. And thanks for your interest in New Westminster. We put the NW in CKNW. <laughs> that is true. Very, very true. All right, Councillor, thanks so much. Thanks. Have a good morning.